are. So it's the last of these special episodes of the British Broadcasting Century. Rewind to the end of season one. That's the second day of the Beeb, the second station of the Beeb in Birmingham, and the second broadcasting team beyond 2LO in London, somewhere else was calling. On November the 15th, 1922, Birmingham went live, thanks to the man you will hear from in this episode. We've even got a little of his voice and a lot of his words, thanks to a memoir recently rediscovered and read to us by his grandson, David Edgar. So let's delve into day two of the BBC via the man running the show, Percy Edgar, on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello. Welcome to our final special before season two picks things up next time and with it the first year of the BBC. Season one told the story of the birth of the BBC. We paused at day two then when the BBC went national and season two coming soon will pick up at day three of the BBC. The first entertainers, the first staff appointments, the arrival of Wreath, the beginning of a new era of professional broadcasting. But right now, we are still on the first 24 hours of the Beeb. My word, we're taking this even more slowly than I thought. Oh, and I should say, the BBC is nothing to do with this podcast whatsoever. They've not promoted it, asked for it. They don't even know that this exists, apart from the two or three people who work there who have discovered us. Hello to you. No, it's just me, Paul Carenza, comedy writer, occasional broadcaster, amateur radio historian, and luckily for you good folks, completist. Well, on the last few specials, we've had some longer form bits of radio history. We had a speech from Marconi maestro Captain Round, a parliamentary reconstruction. On this final special, we bring you a recently dusted down memoir of a presenter, producer and pioneer who was there for the launch of the BBC and stayed longer than anyone. Percy Edgar, the most influential regional director of the BBC in the 20s, 30s and 40s. Season one brought us to day two of the BBC. The Beeb was three stations, London, Birmingham and Manchester. And there were two men behind the Birmingham station. Engineer in charge, A.E. Thompson. I had the idea of getting Mr. Percy Edgar to come on and do a crosstalk act with me. And the man he convinced to run the show, Percy Edgar. Those were the days which made possible broadcasting as we know it today. You will hear from him too. And you'll hear much more about him in his own words told by his grandson. Both Edgar and Thompson would soon be well-loved as the first regular children's presenters, Uncle Edgar and Uncle Tom. More of that coming up. So the bulk of this special episode is the memoir of Percy Edgar, music hall performer, Dickens reenactor, concert organiser, until this new broadcasting lark came along. You'll hear all about, well, I'll let Percy Edgar tell you. That tiny studio, heavily blanketed, containing just a player piano, a cabinet gramophone, a chair and a microphone. That opening night, when the programmes ended with the announcement of the general election results, and the staff had to walk home at two o'clock in the morning because no taxi would make the journey through the impenetrable fog outside. That first news bulletin, the first children's hour, all those hectic, crowded days when the station director booked the artists, arranged their transport, announced their items, read the news, manipulated the player piano and the gramophone and was an uncle in the children's hour, working 15 or perhaps 16 hours a day. For now, let's hear his words, radio pioneer Percy Edgar, writing in 1968, looking back to 1922, 
rediscovered and read for us in 2021 by his grandson, David Edgar. Forging the magic key of broadcasting. How first Birmingham station was inaugurated. Thus began the change of circumstance which finally led me to broadcasting. In 1919, I became concert manager to an old established Birmingham firm of concert agents. I was responsible for arranging many of the town hall celebrity concerts, an interesting job in which I met many artists of international fame. I also looked after the concerts of the City Orchestra in its early days, when its conductor was Appleby Matthews. But after eight months, the firm went into voluntary liquidation, whether cause or effect, I never discovered. The next link in the chain led me to the Birmingham Repertory Theatre and Barry Jackson, who engaged me to play The King of the Peacocks, a delightful Chinese fantasy by Planchet, produced by A.E. Filmer. I played the captain of a Chinese junk and got lots of fun out of it. In fact, it was the happiest season of all my theatrical experiences. We played the Peacocks at matinees and in the evenings Quality Street, with a cast which included Cedric Hardwick, Oliver Johnston and Melville Cooper. There began my friendship with Sir Barry Jackson, a friendship which has enriched my life as the life of everyone who has been privileged to know this charming, cultured man of the theatre must have been enriched. His shy, modest manner concealed an almost staggering knowledge and appreciation of the drama and music and art, and in later years I came to regard him as one of our most accomplished broadcasters. My association with him throughout the 26 years with the BBC will always remain one of my treasured memories. Then came a brief spell as a concert manager again, this time at a music warehouse in New Street. It was while I was there in the autumn of 1922 that the final link in the chain was forged. One day, a Mr Thompson walked in. The man himself, Percy Edgar, picks up the story. And introduced himself as representing the Western Electric Company who were installing the new broadcasting station in Birmingham. The form of this innovation in entertainment having been agreed upon between the post office and the radio manufacturers on October the 18th of that year. His call on me was the result of an incident which was to play an important part in the life of the driver of the car he chanced to hire outside New Street Station to take him down to the site of the new broadcasting station at Witten. Rather amusing, really, to think how we came together, because he arrived at New Street Station, hailed the first taxi available on the rank, and asked to be driven to the nearest music warehouse. It happened to be just round the corner, only a few yards from New Street Station, so the taxi hadn't far to travel. And that was the first of hundreds of journeys that the owner of the car, Howard Cheshire, was to make for the BBC all over the Midlands the beginning of a close association with broadcasting and a personal friendship, which I am happy to record, still exists. Thompson asked me if I would produce parties of artists and send them to Witten when the station started to perform over the wireless. So Edgar met Thompson. So let's hear from Thompson himself then, reflecting on something that I wish were behind us, a station boss wanting on-air creative contributors for free. It was there that I met Mr Percy Edgar, and he was uh, most helpful. Of course, it was all new to him, and, uh, and uh, I had to explain to him that uh, uh, we couldn't pay the artists any fees because we hadn't got any money in those days to pay them. And most we could go to was to pay their taxi fare down there. Now, thankfully, nowadays, there are budgets for such things, I'm told. 
No fee could be promised as there was no revenue except the money derived from the tariff paid by the manufacturers of receiving sets. This, of course, was revolutionary, and I had an awful job to convince the head of my firm that the enormous publicity resulting would more than offset the loss of the 10% booking fees normally received from the artists. But eventually he agreed with reluctance. Eventually I did convince him that the publicity would, at any rate would be worthwhile, and uh, so I sent down a half a dozen artists there on the first night, so I started to arrange parties of artists who were given instructions to foregather at the rendezvous in New Street, where they were picked up by Cheshire's car and taken off to the studio at Witten. And what a studio! It was housed on the third floor of a warehouse belonging to the General Electric Company, who had placed at our disposal a small suite of three rooms for this experiment. One was the transmitter room, one the office, and the third the studio. The latter was heavily draped in blanket cloth from floor to ceiling, the floor being covered by a thick carpet. Little was known about acoustics in those days, and this was considered the best way to deal with sound waves. There was no ventilation, and you may imagine what the atmosphere was like. Yet it was in that room that we forged a key, a magic key, which was to open a thousand doors of pleasure and fun and learning, the open sesame to all the joys of radio that have come since. The only furniture was a player piano, a cabinet gramophone and the microphone. Later we had to add a small platform about two feet square and a few inches high on which we stood the performer to ensure that he or she didn't move away from the mic, a habit which gave us a lot of trouble in those first days. In fact, the artists had to learn an entirely different technique from that of the concert platform. One evening we had a soubrette from a local music hall with each refrain, she pranced up and down the studio in her usual stage routine dance, with the studio manager following her, faint but pursuing, holding the microphone in front of her mouth. Otherwise, half her turn would have been lost to listeners. That little platform was very necessary, and indeed extremely effective, for if the performer did move away from the mic, he fell off. The broadcasting suite was reached via a little iron footbridge into the stores behind the office block. It also led to the office toilet, which proved somewhat confusing until we had direction notices put on the walls. One evening, the late John Henry and his wife Blossom were due to broadcast, but hadn't appeared. After a desperate search, they were finally located, sitting in one of the deserted offices, patiently waiting for something to happen. Now, as a quick turnaround on the launch date of November the 15th, 1922, 3pm, the aerial was tested. 5pm, they began broadcasting with the words... This is the Birmingham Broadcast Station, the Western Electric Company. We are transmitting on behalf of the Broadcasting Committee. Now, those words were announced by the second voice of the BBC. Arthur Burroughs was the first voice. Now, the second voice, bit of a mystery, some have said. Some history books say that this was said by Percy Edgar. But some other history books say that it was A.E. Thompson, Birmingham's engineer-in-chief. Most radio history books hedge their bets and don't pick a name at all. It's only in assembling this episode that I've discovered the truth. Was it Percy Edgar or was it the engineer, A.E. Thompson? The final verdict is given by Percy Edgar himself, reminiscing in 1947. It was a programme of music and speech provided by the courtesy of Messrs. Dale Forty and Company. I remember my duties kept me at the receiving end. 
Mr Edgar reveals that he was listening, or listening in, as they called it then. And I shall never forget the thrill of hearing the first notes of the piano played by my old friend and colleague, the late Walter Randall, as they came to me via a crystal set and a pair of headphones. He'd be broadcasting within a few days, but day one of the Birmingham station, day two of the BBC as a whole, it was A.E. Thompson announcing. Here is Thompson himself recreating the original Birmingham 5IT call sign in 1962. Hello, hello, this is 5IT, 5IT. We are transmitting on a wavelength of 420 metres and our call sign is 5IT. From now on, we shall be transmitting daily. This is 5IT. The Birmingham call sign became 5IT after a few days. But on the first night the station's call sign was 2WP, as it had just moved up from London. Here's David Edgar. The transmission that evening, which included a news bulletin and was frequently interrupted by the announcement of the station call sign 2WP, ended with the general election results, which were phoned through to the studio and were broadcast at intervals until midnight. It happened to be the night of the general election, and we stayed on to give out election results which were telephoned to us and uh, telephoned as they came in from the local press agency. The artists who had the thrill of broadcasting in that first programme to go out from the new Birmingham studio were Florence Winkless, soprano, Beatrix Best, contralto, Madge Smith, mezzo-soprano, Katrina Bund, elocutionist, Arthur Gilbert, tenor, Walter Hurd, flautist, Vincent Curran, uh, elocutionist, and my old friend Walter Randall played the accompaniments. The items were entirely unrehearsed. The artist was put in front of the microphone at a distance according to the strength of his or her voice, the rousing baritone or booming bass standing the farthest away. Now, of course, it's all regulated by control knobs. There was only one microphone, remember, so it had to be placed about equidistant from both artist and piano so as to pick up both. The player piano and the gramophone were great standbys and were turned on to fill up any gap in the programme. The staff in those days numbered five, including three of the Western Electric Company's engineers, Thompson, who I've already mentioned, Mr Amis and a Frenchman, Delarain. They were a grand trio who worked miracles with that lash-up of a transmitter with its four-span aerial slung between two poles on the top of the office block. The quality of the transmission was checked both by headphones and by the old original horn-type loudspeaker. Do you remember those earphones, too? Long, long before even the horn type of loudspeaker. Two black earpieces at the end of a curved metal band which somehow never fitted comfortably over one's scalp. Percy Edgar there on the technology of the day. Odd to think that earphones came before louder amplification. So if you're listening to this via earphones, well, you're old school. Now, before we return to David Edgar, Percy's grandson, may I shine a brief light on David himself and his place in the Edgar dynasty? David Edgar is a prolific playwright. I remember, actually, we looked at one of his plays about 20 years ago when I was at drama school at Guildford School of Acting. Since 1970, David's had dozens of plays staged, worked extensively with the RSC. He wrote Albert Speer, Playing with Fire. Several of David's works have been adapted for screen or radio. Broadcasting is also in David's blood. David's mother, Joan Berman, was an overseas BBC radio announcer during World War II, while David's father, that's Percy's son, if you're with me, was Barry Edgar. That's the middle generation of Edgars. 
Barry Edgar was also a BBC lifer from the 1940s to the 1970s. Barry was a studio manager on the first post-war TV broadcast at Alexandra Palace, an announcer at the 1948 London Olympics when he was actually meant to be a production manager. Barry produced 164 episodes of Come Dancing, 76 Songs of Praises, 225 episodes of Gardener's World, Muffin the Mule, Test Match Cricket, Carols from Kings. Barry Edgar produced over 1,200 programmes over a 30-year career. You can thank the Edgar family for so much of British broadcasting. So let's get back to them. Back to Percy's grandson, David, with occasional interruptions from Percy himself on how Percy's post became permanent. Within a few weeks of the opening night, I was offered the job of station manager. Much surprised, I was greatly exercised in my mind as to whether to accept. My existing job was, I thought, interesting, comfortable and permanent. And here I was, invited to leave it for the chanciest kind of future. Remember, it was a form of entertainment which was quite new and untried, regarded by most people as nothing more than a toy, which was just what the homemade crystal set was then, played with night after night by father as long as the rest of the family would stand it. People said the novelty would wear off and compared it with Diabolo and other passing crazes, and one great national newspaper gave it 12 months to live. But, you know, I had sufficient faith in its possibilities to give up my job and join the daring band of adventurers who were to be the pioneers of what has since proved to be the most popular and powerful form of entertainment in the home. I was given the weekend in which to make up my mind, and it was the most disturbing period I've ever spent. Friends advised me not to touch it with a barge pole, but opportunity knocks once. I felt quite sincerely that this was the opportunity that knocks but once. And I felt quite definitely that I must grasp it with both hands. And on the Sunday evening, after the offer had been made, I, I said just that to my wife, who said, well, if that's how you feel about it, you take it. I met Thompson over a cup of coffee. Yes, it really was coffee. And he said, well, what have you decided? I told him I decided to accept his offer. He said, I'm glad. He said, you'll never regret it. And I never did. But have ever been grateful to one who had faith in my ability to serve what was to become the great broadcasting service, which had become an integral part of the lives of people throughout the country. Those of us who were in it at the beginning were adventurous and keen about the new so-called toy. By the end of 1922, only six weeks after the first transmission, 19,500 licences had been taken out in this country, and two years later, in November 1924, the total had reached one million. One of our first innovations, and perhaps the most loved, when the Birmingham Broadcasting Station was set up at Witten, was the Children's Corner. It was born on December the 5th, 1922, 20 days after the station had opened. It lasted 20 minutes and consisted of story reading and simple tunes played on the gramophone. And who better to tell us about how the first children's programmes came about than the first two children's presenters themselves? First, here's Percy, a.k.a. Uncle Edgar, and then A.E. Thompson, a.k.a. Uncle Tom, whose idea it was. But first, Percy. I remember he was talking one night after the evening transmission was closed down about the programmes for the following day and said, I've been thinking about a few items, especially for youngsters, round about their bedtime. I had the idea of getting Mr Percy Edgar to come on and do a crosstalk act with me. and That helped a lot because I, I, I'm, I'm 
not used to st telling stories to children at all. Next day at about six o'clock, he went into the studio with a few gramophone records and a child's storybook, and the programme was announced as one intended especially for children. That, that was really a headache, but I thought up the idea of uh, a blue cat with yellow spots. I thought that ought to interest them, and I said that I had in the studio a cat with a blue cat with yellow spots that always sat on my desk and used to get up to the weirdest antics during the day. And I used to re relate what, just what Susan had been up to during the day to the children, you see. And uh, they seemed to like that very much, except the small boys. And I started getting letters from small boys saying, Dear Uncle Tom, couldn't we have some stories about a dog, please? Because cats are for girls. Mr A.E. Thompson there with Susan the Blue Cat with yellow spots. Whether or not cats are for girls, which is news to me, here is David Edgar reading the words of his grandfather, Percy, talking about the man in the middle generation, Barry Edgar. Long before he produced 1,200 programmes for the BBC, as a boy... Barry influenced Children's Hour. My part in it was inspired by seeing the reaction of my own small son to the story called Spick and Span of two little gnomes who spent their days doing good deeds. This rapidly became a favourite with our young listeners and I read it so often I knew it by heart. Barry's reaction to the first ever children's broadcast in 1922 made by his dad ensured that they made another children's programme and another and another. Children's broadcasting has been on almost every day since. Thompson and I little dreamt when we walked into the studio that afternoon 45 years ago with a few gramophone, gramophone records and a child's storybook and a couple of books of children's stories that we were starting something that was to become a daily part of the lives of millions of children all over the British Isles. That afternoon we began by announcing that the programme was specially for children and invited them to let us know if they liked the items and wished us to continue it each evening. The response was immediate and staggering. Letters poured in from children and then from parents, begging us not only to continue, but to lengthen the time devoted to them. So we did, and eventually it became a whole hour. And what fun it was. Like the rest of the programmes in the first few weeks, it was quite unrehearsed and was to me by far the most fascinating part of the day's work. And 45 years later, as Percy wrote those words, it's almost exactly when Children's Hour finally finished with questions in Parliament about this grave move by the evolving BBC of the mid-60s, stopping a programme that had begun when many of these politicians were children. On the first Christmas Eve, I broadcast a shortened version of Scrooge from The Christmas Carol, which I adapted specially for youngsters. They loved it and, like Oliver Twist, asked for more. I had to broadcast it in Children's Hour each Christmas Eve for 15 years, by which time I suppose the original children had children of their own. The London's Children's Hour began 18 days after we'd started it, so Birmingham was first. For the first few weeks I was employed by the Western Electric Company until, on January 1st 1923, my appointment as Birmingham's station director was confirmed by the newly formed British Broadcasting Company with the late Sir William Noble as its chairman and then Major J.C.W. Reith as general manager. I shall never forget my first meeting with Reith. It was in a microscopic office in Marconi House in London. With him were the late Peter Eckersley, the chief engineer, and the late Arthur Burroughs, the programme director, an oddly assorted trio. 
Reef, dour and unsmiling, with disconcertingly penetrating eyes and unbelievably tall. I'm by no means short, but when he looked down at me from his six foot seven inches, I felt about four feet nothing. Eckersley, a dynamic personality exuding bonhomie, and Burroughs, quiet, kindly, sympathetic, and ready to help as always. These were some of the men with whom I threw in my lot, because like them, I had faith in the possibilities of broadcasting, and so I became one of the little band of adventurers who were to be the pioneers of what has proved to be the most popular and certainly the most powerful force of entertainment in the home. How we all revelled in those crowded, hectic days when we announced the programmes, read the news, operated the player piano and the gramophone, were uncles in the children's corner, booked the artists and arranged their transport, working 14 or 15 hours a day, week in, week out, Sundays and bank holidays alike. Exacting? Yes, perhaps. Amateurish? Unquestionably. Amateurish? Crude? Yes. Perhaps. But thrilling and exciting. And looking back on those days, now we have the satisfaction of knowing that they made possible broadcasting as we know it today. Those were the days which made possible broadcasting as we know it today. And those of us who were in it at the beginning remember them with pride and affection. Remember them now with pride and a good deal of real affection. Despite the fact that all that was happening nearly 46 years ago. I feel that broadcasting is still a very young service, for the cinema has reached early middle age and the press a comparatively ripe old age. Like them both, broadcasting has been marked since its earliest days by a great variety of appeal. Unlike them, it is non-competitive in this country and has never been commercialised, and I devoutly hope it never will. Its development might so easily have reproduced the early story of the cinema, which for a time failed to make the most of its opportunities for enriching the public mind and was only too apt in its feverish struggle for big box office returns to concentrate its aim upon the lowest common denominator of public taste. We owe it largely to one man, John Reith, now Lord Reith, that British broadcasting took the course it did. He shaped and moulded it. With amazing foresight and vision, two of his many great qualities, he saw it as touching life at every angle and appealing to every kind of home. Its policy, as he laid it down from the very beginning, was to bring the best of everything to the greatest number of people. Entertainment was primarily its function, but as early as 1924 he wrote, To have exploited so great a scientific instrument for the purpose and pursuit of entertainment alone would have been a prostitution of its powers and an insult to the character and intelligence of the people. One of his ideals was to give the public something a little better than it thought it wanted. He is in every way a great man. I was privileged to know him as well, perhaps as anyone in the service, and saw a good deal more of him than most of my provincial colleagues has an, had an opportunity of doing. We had long conversations on the telephone too, for he had a habit of ringing me up between 11 and midnight at my home most Sunday evenings to talk about programmes, staff and studios and equipment, or listeners' correspondence, to which he always attached the utmost importance, and was insistent that every letter, whether of praise or blame, should be answered promptly and courteously. Like so many truly great men, he was a target for abusive criticism from those who disagreed with his policy, which was variously described as unimaginative or too narrow or too straight-laced. 
but he never allowed broadcasting to leave the track along which he had decreed that it should run. How right the policy has been abundantly proved over and over again, and that it was justified is obvious in the fact that British broadcasting is still the envy and admiration of the world. Despite those qualities which made him the butt of so much criticism, Reith, to those who really knew him, is a lovable character, a man for whom I conceived the utmost affection and admiration. He made several attempts to get me to transfer to the staff at Savoy Hill and later to Portland Place, and at one time or another offered me some rather attractive jobs there, but I felt that my work lay in Birmingham and that my most valuable contribution to broadcasting could be made here in the Midlands. That was always my reply to his offers, and the last time he tried to persuade me to leave Midland Region, and I used the same argument to convince him that I shouldn't, his comment was characteristic. Very well, Edgar, but if you ever you do come to London now, it will be at your own request, not mine. Reith's work for broadcasting began when it was in its cradle, and continued until it was 16 years old, and any survey of its history, and particularly the story of its early days, must be incomplete without payment of the very highest tribute to his ideals and his extraordinary skill in getting them into practical effect. Within a few weeks of my appointment as station manager at Witten, it became obvious that I must have some help, and I offered Harold Casey the post of assistant. I had known him as a concert artist from the time he was demobilised after the First World War, in which he served in the Irish Guards. He held the proud distinction of being the youngest sergeant major in the battalion. His robust baritone voice, which he must have used with tremendous effect on the parade ground, soon made him a popular figure on Midland concert platforms in the early 1920s. Young and keen, he too was quick to see the possibilities in broadcasting and accepted my offer to become assistant manager taking over the administration and bringing to the work terrific enthusiasm and organising ability, qualities which have increased rather than diminished over the past quarter of a century, which earned him the post he held until his retirement a couple of years ago, of Midland Regional Executive. His loyalty to broadcasting, and to me, was something for which I would always owe him a great debt of gratitude. He made good use of his voice in those early days and soon became one of the first radio favourites. The advantage of having an assistant who could sing was soon evident, for one evening just before Christmas we were badly let down by the artists who promised to help me. The rot set in just about tea time when first one and then another phoned through to say that owing to unforeseen circumstances etc they would be unable to come out to Witten. I strongly suspected that the circumstances were paid engagements would come at short notice, and who could blame them for accepting them? Certainly not I. The situation became desperate as the evening wore on, and Casey and I went into a huddle about it. Luckily, he had a pile of songs at the studio, so we collected half a dozen of them to sing. A station accompanist, William Woodward, said he was good for as many as the Beethoven sonatas as we wanted, or as we thought the listeners would stand. And with these and a few of my own Dickens character studies, we thought we might hold the air for an hour or so. But after that, what? Then, as I went to the microphone to start up the programme, I had a brainwave. I told my unseen audience exactly what had happened, what we proposed to give them as a substitute, and said, if there's anyone out there listening who could help and come along to Witten, we should be extremely grateful. Surely the first successful SOS for within half an hour, a taxi arrived containing a cello, 
a violin, a piano accordion, and a young man who said he can play them all. Without any rehearsal, he did play them all, and has continued uh, to broadcast ever since, but today with his own orchestra. His name, Jan Berenczka. Program building was a chancy business in those days. We could never be quite certain what was going to happen, and often I had the uncomfortable feeling that had it not been for the novelty of it all, the long-suffering listeners would have got a little tired of the ubiquitous efforts of either Casey or me, or both of us, as alternatives to the player piano or gramophone, whenever there was a gap to be filled. But they didn't, and their tolerance and appreciation expressed in an ever-increasing number of letters and telephone calls encouraged us not only to continue, but to redouble our efforts to justify and popularise the wireless. In fact, it was only by their correspondence that we could learn anything about listener reaction. It was our barometer, and happily never moved more than a point or two either way from set fair. The press and the radio retailers, too, gave us invaluable help by passing on programme suggestions and criticism, help without which our task in exploiting this untried medium would have been indeed a hard one. We owe them a debt far greater than we perhaps realised at the time. At first, you know, it was all rather fun, an exciting adventure, and it would have been excusable if we had lost sight of its great potentialities in the thrill of being engaged in a project entirely new and without precedent. For remember, this was something which had never in the history of man been dreamt of. For me, it was like finding oneself at the helm of a new ship, at the beginning of a voyage into uncharted seas, without even a compass, with a crew who, like their skipper, knew little or nothing of the course to be set. That we kept our craft on an even keel and avoided piling her up on some hidden reef, eventually bringing her into safe waters, seems now something of a miracle, which indeed it was. And I shall never cease to be grateful for the unfailing help given us by our good friends, the listeners, the press, and the trade. For instance, every newcomer to the microphone was a fresh hazard. One of the most successful in those early days was Graham Squires, whose black country sketches were in demand from the moment he broadcast Ebert at the Works dinner within a few days of the opening programme. He was the first artist to introduce dialect sketches into radio, and later teamed up with equal success with Edith James, another early favourite in Songs at the Piano and in the Ebert and Geerty sketches. In the second month of the new year, the programme was given a terrific Philip by a broadcast talk, the first from the Birmingham station, by the then Lord Mayor, Alderman David Davis, speaking on that very vital problem of the time, unemployment. It was an early and striking example of the way in which the wireless could be used as a means of reaching a far vaster audience than had ever been possible before. A month or so later, we felt we were really beginning to get somewhere when we did our first outside broadcast from the Birmingham Town Hall, the speaker being none other than His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. The paralysing anxiety with which we listened at the transmitter may well be imagined, but it was soon forgotten in the blessed relief with which we heard it come to an end without the slightest suspicion of a technical hitch for outside broadcast could and did play some unexpected tricks in the early days of their introduction. There was, for instance, the occasion of the relay from the south coast of a matinee performance of Hansel and Gretel, 
Maggie Tate had just started to sing one of the lovely arias when listeners heard a masculine voice in an unmistakably Yorkshire accent say, Hey, for heaven's sake, stop that ruddy music. I'm trying to get a trunk call to Leeds. That little diversion was the result of induction on the post office telephone lines, a thing that was liable to happen at any time before technical improvements made it impossible. It just couldn't happen today, more's the pity. In the early months of the year, it became evident that we must widen the scope of our programmes and provide more diversity than was possible with an hour or two of solo items. So I asked Ralph Powell to form an orchestra which could make regular visits to the studio. A genial soul, Ralph, who beamed benevolently through his spectacles at microphone, musicians, his music score and me with a delightful impartiality. He was indulgent too, for whenever his orchestra played Kettleby's In a Persian Market, which was not infrequently, he allowed me to produce the single gong stroke with which the piece ended, a performance to which I brought considerable zest, proof if proof were needed, that the fruits of my early incursions into flute-blowing were now ripening into active musical execution. It was natural that the staff should expand with the programme, and soon I appointed a part-time announcer, a night telephonist to take down and transcribe the items for the news bulletin, which had now become a regular evening feature of our broadcasts, and a full-time secretary, Gladys Colburn, who was immediately roped in to read stories in the children's corner, and willy-nilly became the first radio aunt. She was, too, a valuable member of the effects department, her bleating of a lamb being, if anything, more plaintive than the real article. She remained a firm favourite of the children and an able secretary until she left to be married 12 years later. Another all-rounder was Elsie Wilson, who followed Woodward as station accompanist. She, too, had the gift of mimicry and gave a most lifelike imitation of a farmyard rooster in her cock-and-doodle song which soon became a popular request item. She became the corner's Auntie Elsie, joining Auntie Gladys, Uncle Pat Casey and me. How we looked forward each day to five o'clock. It was the one programme of the day in which we could really let ourselves go. I'm sure we got as much fun out of those early children's corners as the youngsters who listened. Perhaps that was the secret of their success, that we became children ourselves for one magic hour a day. We could forget the serious side of broadcasting and let our imaginations have complete freedom. To my staff here in Midland Region. 25 years ago, they numbered five. Today, they total just over 200. Some have come and gone. But to each and every one of them who ever served under me, I want to say a very real thank you. Percy Edgar there, rounding off David Edgar's marvellous reading of his grandfather's memoirs. Thank you, David, for sharing that with us. It's quite lovely to hear those stories. London might have had Reith and Eckersley and Burroughs, but in the Midlands, for my money, Percy Edgar had some of the finest tales about what went on, the joy, the chaos, the can-do attitude. He was the first to tell stories to children then, and he's still telling stories to us now. And I think he's the longest-serving of the original pioneers. I lay down the gauntlet to you, dear listener. Do correct me. Find someone who was there at the start in 1922 or even 23, who was still there when Percy Edgar retired in 1948. 
if you can find someone, a blankety blank checkbook and pen, or at least a photocopy of one, is yours, if you can tell me otherwise. Let me close with this from Cecil Lewis, who was also there right at the start. He describes Percy Edgar. He always seems to have been there. He has a round face, and no one with a round face ever worried too much about life. He has a jovial smile and happy disposition that breeds goodwill and cooperation wherever he goes. Such people are a pleasure to meet and work with. Thanks to listener Alan Pemberton for pointing that bit out to me. And thank you, Alan, because your email with that prompted me to look into Percy Edgar a bit more. In fact, a lot more. It helped me discover David Edgar as his grandson, to contact David, which got David to rediscover Percy's memoirs that he's not read in years, if ever. And that's all because Alan emailed the podcast. So if you want to email the podcast too, do it. Paul at paulcarenza.com. Who knows what rabbit hole you will send me down. Now, there's plenty more to come on Percy Edgar and A.E. Thompson as we embark on season two of the podcast, starting next episode. Hear their tales of year one of the BBC, how Reith and Burroughs and Cecil Lewis set up the first BBC HQ, and then Savoy Hill, Women's Hour, The Radio Times, Battles with the Press and the Government. All that to come next season. But first, next time, from day two of the BBC that you've heard about this episode to, yes, you guessed it, day three of the BBC, London's first entertainment broadcast, officially The BBC's first entertainers, singers and comedians will be revealed next time when we are joined with one of today's top BBC entertainers, Mr Lee Mack. You heard me right. Would I lie to you? So do subscribe and share. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Rate us, review us, rant about us for we are a team of one. And unlike the early days of the Beeb, we don't quite have the same chance of growth. So do help us out. Tell your friends. Stay tuned as we say farewell to the specials and hello to season two of the British Broadcasting Century. Presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain, being over 50 years old, or used with kind permission of the BBC, or they belong to copyright holders such as the Edgar family, who we thank profusely for sharing Percy Edgar and his words with us. Be informed, educated, entertained and subscribed next time with season two, the first year of the BBC and the British Broadcasting Century.